0: I don't know if you guys are like me. Maybe you are. Uh, every once in a while, I like to read a different translation of the Bible. And I have a King James Version. Uh, and I, I typically read out of the, the uh, New International Version. But sometimes I just like to see it or hear it in a different way. For me, that's, that's beneficial. And, and, you know, I do like some things about the King James. Now, I don't like the fact that I don't understand some of the words. Right? It's, it seems like very old language. And, uh, but I do like some parts of it, like at the end of the, the, uh, the Lord's Prayer, where the King James Version has, for thine is the kingdom and the power and glory forever and ever. I, I like that. It's not in my, my NIV version. And a little while ago, I was reading the King James, and I, I sort of went down a rabbit hole because I had some questions. I started to notice that there are some words that are in italics. I'm like, I don't know why they're italics. It doesn't seem like they're words that would be emphasized, but some are in italics and some are not. And that got me thinking, well, when was the King James Version written anyway? And do the apostles talk like that? I mean, how many different translations are there of the Bible? See what I'm saying? I started going down a rabbit hole. What's the shortest verse in the Bible? And I was like, well, how many books are in the Bible anyway? How many in the New Testament? How many in the Old Testament? Who wrote these things? When and where were they written? When did we get chapters and verses? I doubt a scroll had chapters and verses. I don't think they wrote that originally. So I go down this rabbit hole. So let me, let me tell you what I found out. Italics in the King James are just words that are not word-for-word translations of the original language and if you don't put them in there they don't the passages won't make sense in English so the King James Version is tries to be a word-for-word translation out of the original language and if there's no word in Greek or Hebrew the King James translators would put it in italics so they were up front telling you this is not in the original it's something we had to add so that you would understand reading this in English. That's a reasonable explanation I thought. Other translations, like the NIV and some of the other ones, they're concept for concept. So the concept in the Greek is translated into the concept in English, and therefore, they don't use italics to to notify you that that idea wasn't in the original, like the the King James does. The red letters we sometimes see in our Bibles, if you have a red-letter Bible of Jesus' words, that only showed up about 120 years ago, 1899. That was the first time red letters showed up in a Bible. Now how about that King James? Translated in 1611. Now Christianity had been known in England from the late 100s. so all of that time, 16, 1700 years, before we get the King James translation. Authorized by King James I, who also authorized the first English flag that you see. That's kind of interesting. But for a thousand years in England, the, the, the Bible was in Latin. And the King James wasn't even the first English translation. That was John Wycliffe around 1380. And no, the apostles did not speak like King James is written. Chapter designations... They were about 1,200. And then in about over time, they started to add verses until the first English Bible to use chapter and verse was in 1650 called the Geneva Bible. And since then, there's been about 450 different English translations. At least that's what Google tells me. There are 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New, written by 40 some different authors from all over the world, well, the known world, over 1,500 years, priests, prophets, a tent maker, a shepherd, fishermen, all these different people writing this one consistent Bible that we have. The originals are gone. Frankly, the, the material they used probably wouldn't last this long anyway, even if we could try to preserve it. But remember, they're copying and copying and copying, getting this word out, the first viral, whatever you call it, is the Bible, right? They're trying to get this word out as fast as they can, and we're going to see today uh, how that happened. Now, I tell you all of this, and and frankly, are these things that really make much of a difference? Would it make a difference to us if there were 67 books of the Bible, or 66? If God had chosen whether or not there was one or less, or one more? So it's a rabbit hole. But there are nice facts to know. It doesn't, doesn't matter if the King James was translated in 1611 or 1650. It doesn't much matter. But there are things that do matter. And, and the title of my sermon today is the New Testament Canon. Because the Canon is the, is the English word for the Greek word canon, K-A-N-O-N, in the Greek. And that just means a rule or a straight rod, a rule, or a standard of excellence. I'm going to talk about how the books that we have in the New Testament became the New Testament, because that's a more serious question. Because if you don't know that you have the right books, your faith can be challenged. It can sort of chip away. Now, look, for me and for many of you, if, if God said it, that's the word, and, and that's fine. And I don't, I rarely don't need to know how the New Testament came to be. I can take it on faith. But not everybody can. And frankly, many Christians uh, and, and many people who challenge the faith believe what Dan Brown said in the Da Vinci Code. He says this, the Bible did not arrive by fax from heaven. For the kids, a fax machine is where you would send a letter through the phone line and it The Bible did not arrive by facts from heaven. The Bible is the product of man, my dear, not God. The Bible did not fall magically from the clouds. Man created it as a historical record of tumultuous times, and it has evolved through countless translations, editions, and revisions. History has never had a definitive definitive version of the book. That's Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code. Now let's be clear, the Da Vinci Code is a work of fiction. It probably should say more so or more prominently, but it doesn't. And many people have bought into that belief that there was some council somewhere, and Constantine on his deathbed decided, oh, there's all these competing views of Christianity, of Christ, and we're going to choose this one, and we're going to dominate the world, so all the other ones that might have legitimate claim to being the gospel, we're going to throw those away, and we're going to choose this one. Dan Brown goes on to say, my dear... Mary Magdalene was the holy vessel. She was the chalice that bore the royal bloodline of Jesus Christ. She was the womb that bore the lineage, the vine from which the sacred fruit sprang forth. For us, we don't need to listen to Dan Brown. But what if you're just coming to Christ? What if you're just starting to hear about this? And you do know that it's true. There were councils that actually talked about where the, what books should be in the Bible. If you put that together with this, it sounds plausible that maybe Constantine did do that or there was some backroom council of bishops that chose what 27 books we were going to have and which ones we weren't. But the Da Vinci Code is historical fiction. The process wasn't that the church fathers, because they wanted to dominate the world, picked the books they wanted, cleaned them up, edited them and then put them in a book and sold it to everybody. That's not what happened. The canon of Scripture, the process of how we got the 27 books, is much more historically rooted than Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code. But there are some truths. In 1945, Muhammad Ali was digging a trench in the desert of Egypt. It was not his boxing Uh, training. That's not Muhammad Ali we're talking about. We're talking about Muhammad Ali, the uh, peasant in Egypt who was digging a trench. Now, depending upon the story you hear, he was either robbing a grave, mining for some material, some mineral, or he was digging an irrigation ditch. But no matter what he was doing, when he puts his shovel into the ground, he hits something hard and he digs up a, a, uh, oh boy, the word's going to escape me. Scrolls were in it, but it was, he, he, it was a sealed up, uh, oh jeez, I don't know what it is. <laughs> it's a, it's a, uh, a thing you drink out of, they used to keep water in them. A chalice, or no not a chalice, that's too small. You know, it's like a bucket, it's like a, we're going to call it a bucket, because a vase, a cistern, there you go. <laughs> I should have put it in my notes. I would have known what that stupid thing was. <laughs> least, I, yeah, I need a sabbatical, right? <laughs> well, at least I know you're paying attention. <laughs> I haven't lost you yet. All right, so, so he, he finds this cistern. It's sealed up. Uh, his brother doesn't want to open it because he doesn't want to disturb the evil spirits inside, but they, he eventually unseals it, and he finds 50-some-odd scrolls, and one of them is a complete copy of the gospel of thomas right the gospel of thomas that's not in this bible i don't think it's in your bible but that is true there is a gospel of thomas you can read it google search the gospel of thomas pdf and you can read the gospel of thomas there's no copyright on first century works so you can just download it and read it if you want But that's true, and it raises a question for us if we're challenged in our faith, is how do you know you have the right Gospels? Because the Gospel of Thomas is out there among among others. I'm going to get back to the Gospel of Thomas in a little while, though. So just hold on to the Gospel of Thomas. What is this standard? What is the canon of Scripture? What is the process that it went through? Why do we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and not Thomas, Mary, Mary? Egyptians, Peter, why don't we? Why do we need a standard anyway? I mean, God's word is God's word. Why do we even need a standard? And to be clear, the Bible is God's word. The canon of scripture is not a man-made standard that God has to meet. It's a standard that men used to discern which books should be in and which should be out. In other words, acknowledging or receiving it, not a standard that God had to meet. Bible is God's Word from the moment each author put ink to paper. So why do we need a standard? Well, there's a few reasons. One, uh, we need to preserve the works of the apostles, right? Eventually, there was no, on Easter Sunday, there was no Bible. When God ascends, when Jesus ascends up to heaven and tells the, the disciples, go and make disciples of all the world, there is no Bible. There's no Bible because Paul wrote it, and it took him a while to become an apostle, right? So it took some time. And as the apostles were martyred or died or, or, or went off to their, to their various locations that they spread the gospel, there was a need to preserve what they taught for the next generations. And if the apostles taught it, it must be valuable, so we wanna keep those, keep those words in those books. The demands of the early church. Now, as Paul and all the other apostles are planning churches and leaving people to lead those churches, they're going to need a basis upon which to teach what the apostles taught them. So we're going to have to record what they said. When, when they send out missionaries, Silas and Timothy and Barnabas, all those other guys that we, we see in the Bible, when they go out, they're going to need something. Word of mouth eventually is going to get, is going to die off. We're not going to be able to remember the apostles after a while. And very shortly after uh, the apostles all pass away, we start to see heretics come. The most famous is Marcion in the early 100s. He was from Asia Minor, and I've read that he's either the son of a bishop in Antioch or he was a wealthy shipbuilder doesn't preclude him from being both, I guess. But one one commentary said that, and one said the other. He does not like what's in the Gospels. He thinks that the Old Testament is completely irrelevant, that Jesus brought a new God with him in his message. And so he went around trying to convince the churches in Asia Minor that the only true apostle, the only faithful apostle, was Paul. And that none of the Jewish Old Testament should be included in your Bible. And for his trouble, Polycarp and Papias threw him out of their churches, so he went to Rome, and he made a sizable donation to the church, and he said, look, this is what your gospel should be, a highly edited version of Luke only, and then some of Paul's letters. Everything else you should not pay attention to. Now, the church in Rome recognized this as heresy right away. So they threw him out of the church and gave him his money back. But it leads the church to say, listen, how do we know which ones we should have? Then there's a practical reason why we need to have, we need to know for sure which ones should be in, which book should be in, which should be out. And that's the persecution. Persecutions. You know, until Constantine comes in the early 300s, we have periods of persecution for the church. And on February 23rd, 302, in Nicomedia, which is in Asia Minor, minor, there's an account of what the persecutions were like under Diocletian. It says, Suddenly, while it was barely light, the prefect, together with the chief commanders, tribunes, and officers of the treasury, came to the church in Nicomedia, They forced the doors and searched everywhere for an image of the God. The holy scriptures were found and burnt. The church was abandoned to general pillage. Now, Diocletian is watching this whole thing from afar, and they're debating whether or not they should burn the church to the ground, but remembering that when Nero did that, he nearly burned down half of Rome and helped build the church, they decided they were just going to dismantle the church. They decided not to burn it. But in those early 300s, when the worst of the persecutions were happening, There were many, many, many attempts to gather up the scriptures and burn them. Untold numbers of manuscripts were burned. The only library that survived was in, uh, I did write that one down, Caesarea, and that lasted until the Muslims came in the late 600s and burned that library. So if your church is going to be attacked, if you may be killed, don't you wanna know that you've got the right books and not some false teaching? Now, my focus today is going to be on the New Testament, mostly because of the time we have, Uh, but secondly, because by the year 250 B.C., the Jewish Bible was generally and, and acknowledged to be what we have as our Old Testament today. Our Old Testament is the Bible that the apostles had it's the one that Jesus refers to when he says the law and the prophets. He's referring to Moses and the prophets, the entire New Testament. And, and some scholars and commentators say that when Jesus says in Matthew 23, 35, he refers to the blood of the righteous, able to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, which are references to the first martyr in Genesis, and then Zechariah being the last in the historical timeline. It's not how our, our Old Testament is set up. But what most commentators believe is that Jesus is saying, book-ending, Genesis, and, and uh, it's Second Chronicles, but that's the timeline. So Jesus refers to all of it, so that's good enough for me. I'm not going to go into which books got into the Old Testament because Jesus and the apostles repeatedly refer to the Old Testament as Scripture. We're going to take their authority as definitive. Now, from the book, The Canon of Scripture by F.F. F. Bruce... He says that the process involved generally six sort of criteria, for lack of a better word. Apostolicity, I don't even know if that's right. Apostolic authority, we'll call it. Antiquity, orthodoxy, catholicity, not Catholic church, but meaning universal. Traditional recognition and inspiration is what the process of these 27 books went through that we recognize today. Now, the primary test is, is the book rooted in an, in an apostle? Now, make no mistake, this is not a technical definition. Because clearly, Luke wasn't an apostle. Mark wasn't an apostle. Right? And even in Romans, like if I say, who wrote Romans? Everybody says Paul. But you remember in chapter 16 where Paul is saying, hey, greet so-and-so, greet this one, greet that one. And he must have needed to take a drink or go to the bathroom because then the guy who wrote it says I Tertius also greet you. Right? He tries to throw that in there to let you know that I actually put pen to paper. So it's this apostolicity means rooted in apostle. It's not a technical definition and the gospel writers don't even tell us who they are. Right? Technically they are anonymous. But the early church was in a better position than we are to know who actually wrote those gospels and you can imagine if you're mark if you put your name to it you put a target on your back so it's reasonable for us to assume that the gospel writers and and some of the other books they wouldn't put their name to it early on because of the persecution they faced but papius between 60 and 130 tells us that mark wrote peter's gospel he's only one or two generations away it's not like we need to go figure out whether Mark wrote, Peter's, or Mark wrote Peter's version of the gospel today, 2,000 years later, Papias tell us. Even earlier than that, Clement of Rome around 95 says, The apostles received the gospel for us from the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was sent from God. The Christ, therefore, from God, and the apostles from the Christ. See, he's starting to root the Christian faith in the apostles' teachings that they learned from Jesus. Very, very early. 90, Paul might not, or uh, John may not have even passed away yet. Ninety-five A.D. They're already talking about this. Comes from the apostles within the Bible itself. Colossians four sixteen. After this letter has been read to you, the, the point about being technical. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Paul's letter from Laodicea is not in the Bible. So it's not automatic. You know, if Peter wrote down his grocery list, that's not scripture. So there has to be some other criteria as well that we add to it. Antiquity just means that they were written early on. Right, if they're if they were written after all the apostles died, they can't be from the apostles. Somebody else has to be writing it, and even though it may conform to all the message in the gospel, uh, if they were not written early, they wouldn't be accepted as scripture. What was accepted as scripture very early on? Again, in the year ninety-five, and from, from First Clement of Rome. He refers to the four and only four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as the Gospels, as Scripture, along with 1 Corinthians. So we're already acknowledging before the year 100 that these are Scripture, very early. Around 100, there's a a document called the Didache, which which is the teachings, sometimes called the teachings of the 12 apostles. Not written by an apostle, but it is edifying for the early church, it seemingly calls Matthew scripture and it calls, it it refers to a curse in Deuteronomy about people who change scripture using that for people who change the New Testament so very early, we're not talking Constantine time, like we're 200 years before Constantine, so we can put that away and not worry that Constantine had anything to do with this some evil nefarious plot to take over the world even Ignatius in the year 110 he's on his way to martyrdom he's he's a bishop in Antioch he's being taken to Rome to be martyred he's writing letters to everybody on the way he calls the four gospels we have scripture and then as well as 1 Corinthians Ephesians 1 and 2 Timothy Romans Philippians and Galatians so a 4 115 120 the first second generation after the apostles we've already got acknowledgement of what are Bible is going to become. Some people started to write lists, which is how we know where the where the lists are, or where the where the the timeline is here. There's a something called the Muratorian Fragment from 170. and It's the first known written list of what should be in the New Testament. It's only a partial fragment, but what it has is 23 of the 27 books acknowledged as Scripture, and it could be the other four just are part of that other fragment. And the only ones that aren't there are Hebrews, James, 1 and 2 Peter. Everything else by 170 is already accepted as scripture. Interestingly enough, though, to F.F. To F. Bruce's point about antiquity, the, the fragment also says the book called The Shepherd of Hermas, which was a very popular, and, and some people thought it should be in the Bible, that book, he says, cannot be in the Bible because it, was not, because it was written in our time, meaning 150 to 170. It's not written during the Apostles' Age. Another thing that a book would need to have if it was going to be considered was orthodoxy. Just, just meaning it's consistent with, the, with the, the rest of the Bible. It can't be off on its own, having its own theology. It can't claim that Jesus wasn't God like the Gospel of Peter does. It has to conform to the rest of the Bible. Some people did try to write historical fiction. There's something called the Acts of Paul, which does conform to the entire Bible, but the poor guy they found out who actually wrote it and then put Paul's name to it, they threw him out of the church as well as soon as they found out. And these books were known. There weren't lost Gospels. The Gospel of Peter was known around the year 200. The problem with the Gospel of Peter is... It tries to tell us the story of when Jesus rose from the grave. Right? We don't have that in our Gospels, that, that moment where he comes out. The Gospel of Peter tells us there were three people that were, came out, which doesn't seem to conform to our Bible, and that there was a talking cross that came around also. So that one, that can't be in there. I said I would get back to the Gospel of Thomas, and I'll get to that here. The Gospel of Thomas is critics' favorite gospel to claim should be in the New Testament. The Jesus Seminar from a couple of decades ago, they actually, if I re- recall this correctly, they claim, this group of liberal and atheistic scholars claim that there is, the sayings of Jesus in the Gospel of Thomas are more accurate than I think they said the Gospel of John, but one of the other Gospels. So, so all these scholars are claiming that's more, the Gospel of Thomas is more accurate and, you know, there, it could be true. Look, in it, the Gospel of Thomas is just 114 sayings of Jesus. In number 90, it says, Jesus said, Come unto me, for my yoke is easy and my lordship is mild, and you will find repose for yourselves. That reminds us of what? Matthew 11:28 through 30. Come to me, all you, who, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew eleven twenty eight thirty, 30, and Th- Gospel of Thomas, number 90, are kind of similar. There's no real problem there. But why can't the Gospel of Thomas be in the Bible? Well, let's go to number 114. Simon Peter said to him, Let Mary leave us for women are not worthy of life. Jesus said, I myself shall lead her in order to make her male, so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. So, ladies, I'm sorry that you may or may not have needed a cross, apparently. Thomas gospel of Thomas can't be in our Bible because it is not consistent with the rest of the Bible. It seems simple to us, but we still have people who will go around and say, there's lost books of the Bible. You can go to Border, and well, not Border's bookstore anymore, but the one over here, Barnes and Noble, right? You can go to Barnes and Noble, and you can pick a book off the shelf that says the lost books of the Bible, and they'll talk about the gospel of Thomas, and they'll try to make a case that it should be in our Bibles, and we can just say Immediately, if, even if it's not a trouble for you, because we believe the four gospels and we know that Thomas can't be in it, but if anybody ever, ever challenge you and say, "Oh, the gospel of Thomas is legitimate," you can just say, "Okay, look at number 114, and then you tell me whether or not that has anything to do with Christianity or belongs in the in the in the Bible at all." I'm going to shorten up F. F. Bruce's two next points: catholicity, meaning. Again, not Catholic, but universally accepted. And traditional recognition means the church uh, accepts it as a, as, a, uh, as a whole. I'm just going to call it early and widespread acceptance or use by the church. Uh, now, we shouldn't, accept, we shouldn't expect that every book of the Bible, the New Testament, got immediate universal recognition. And there's a very good reason for that. Just remember, where was Revelation written to? Seven churches of. Help me out, Asia, Asia Minor, right? Seven churches of Asia Minor. I think I remember what my announcement was. <laughs> the seven churches of Asia Minor. So where were those letters going to go? Right. The seven churches of Asia Minor. So if those churches receive them, now they've got to kind of work through them and understand them, and they're not going to necessarily Alexandria in Egypt or Rome, right? So it's going to take some time. And if we see some early lists or some church fathers who aren't quoting them, it's not because they don't believe that those are Scripture. It's just that it's taking time for this to be understood and accepted. But most of what we have, 22, 23 of our our books, are almost universally accepted right away with very few reservations. And the ones that do have reservations are reasonable. Like Hebrews, it's... doesn't say who the author is, and people still, to this day, they're debating who the author is. Right? But Hebrews is eventually accepted because of the weight of the other evidence, the inspiration of it, the orthodoxy, and probably, my guess would be, probably back then they had a better idea than we do today the source of Hebrews. Same with Jude, a couple of the others. And the church, they weren't necessarily deciding right away what books should be in. They had other issues they had to deal with. We saw Marcion already, but there were some people who believed that water baptism saved you. Right? The church has to kind of work through that stuff first before it can spend time deciding which books should or shouldn't be in it. Was Jesus really God or was he not? That's what the churches are sort of arguing over and sort of deciding. And that's why these books get in and not the others and even in the new testament itself we see the letters from paul john's gospel we see them responding to false teaching remember paul even says specifically that letter's not from me you know so that, so they they're dealing with all this stuff making a list of 27 appro- approved books is probably secondary on their list of concerns like we said by 170 we start seeing lists 22 of the 27 already are good to go. One other point to make on the widespread acceptance of what our gospel is. I've mentioned the church fathers already. I have to use my notes because there's a lot of names here and they don't sound like our names. Polycarp, Clement, Ignatius, Papius, Justin Martyr. They're the first and second generation after the apostles, and they wrote extensively. The brevity was not in their mind. And so, if we were to find every hard copy of the Bible that's in existence today, every single one, every note that you have in your personal journal that references Scripture, and we were able to find all those hard copies and burn them tomorrow. And then we were able to go all over the Internet and find every copy, every copy of the Bible, every commentary, every scripture, and delete it all. Do you know we could recreate the entire Bible, or the, the entire New Testament, except for 20 verses, just by the references that the early church fathers make? I have, we're not even 150 years to the first council that some people will say decided what was in the Bible. We already have that. It's so early. It's not even. It shouldn't even be a debate, and yet, it is. I'll just make a quick note about the councils because we'll hear we hear about those. Constantine did have a council, the Council of Nicaea. This is what people will always point to and say it's the Council of Nicaea, where they had this closed door meeting and decided what you were going to believe two thousand years ago or two thousand years later that actually wasn't what the Council of Nicaea was. And the Council of Nicaea lists all 27 books, but it acknowledges there's questions about James, Second Peter, Second and Third John, and Jude. And that's it. And they didn't say it wasn't scripture. All they said was there's questions about it, the authorship or, or when they were written, that's all. And then eventually they were accepted because 50 years later, and this is where it is true, At the Council of Hippo in 393 and then again at the Council of Carthage in 397 is when the church says these are the 27 books and no others. And let's keep in mind, it's not the church saying that this is the Bible. God inspires the Bible. It's God's Bible. We just have to receive it and acknowledge what one should be in there and and should not. And that's what the canon of Scripture is. That's the standard we went through. Not some nonsense about people in a council somewhere deciding for you what you were going to believe. There weren't competing versions of Christianity. There were heresies, but they were always quickly and universally condemned. They didn't, it's not like there was one church over here, one church over here, and we're going to battle it out. That's, that's not what happened. And the reason is, is because this is God's Bible no matter what we try to say or do about it, it's going to end up with those 27 books. Our criteria that gives us comfort knowing that there was a process and there was historical evidence to back this up gives us comfort and strength. But it's God's Bible. He's the one who is going to decide what is in and what is out. As the worship team comes up to sing us out, as a postscript, I will just say, if you happen to be interested in this sort of stuff. Uh, I took this information from two books. I mentioned the Canon of Scripture by F.F. F. Bruce. Another good one is a general introduction of the Bible by Norman Geisler. They've got a chart that shows where these lists and, and uh, church fathers come out and how they, how they uh, have acknowledged the Bible early on. If you're not a reader, you can go to YouTube. Uh, Mike Winger and Michael Kruger are both very good at explaining this uh, Mike Michael Kruger actually has a blog called the Canon fodder blog just very interesting if you want to get deep into it and of course Steve Gregg and his app the narrow path are very good alright let's pray father God we thank you for the opportunity to know your word we thank you that you have preserved the scripture for us we thank you that we have a historical basis that we can base our faith upon. Our faith is in you, Jesus. We we know that. We acknowledge that. The historical truth of the Bible helps us to understand you, to understand that this was not a man-made, put-together Bible. No matter what the Da Vinci Code says, no matter who challenges us, we not only have God's Word we have history. God, we thank you for that. May we remain strong in the faith unto the end. God, thank you for everything you've done for us. And God, thank you for the cross.